Well, the 1,600-plus hours of Super Bowl pregame commentary have started, and I want to add a little bit to help us get ready. At the end of the big game, the 48th of its kind, either the Seattle Seahawks or the Denver Broncos will be declared victorious. One of those two teams will be walking away with the prized Vince Lombardi Trophy. Now, of all of the coaches who've coached in the NFL, why does this trophy get named after Vince Lombardi? Well, Lombardi led his Green Bay Packers to the first two Super Bowl wins, 1967 and 1968. Sadly, two years later, in 1970, Lombardi suddenly died, and the NFL wanted to commemorate his victories and honor his memory, and so they decided to change the name of the trophy from the World Championship Trophy to the Vince Lombardi Trophy. And it made sense to do so because, the, because Lombardi is a legend. He's the best of the best. He was so focused on helping his guys learn the fundamentals of the game. The team that wins the Super Bowl wins because they focus on the basics. Now, you've no doubt heard, overheard the story, in fact, the famous story of Lombardi, who after his team lost to inferior squad, gathered them together the next morning at practice and insulted them, embarrassed them by holding up the football itself and saying, gentlemen, this is a football he was all about the basics. Lombardi wanted to help these guys get the fundamentals in place. It's reported that every single preseason, starting in 1959, that Lombardi would kick off his practices by reminding them of this very simple thing. If for him, the fundamentals, a football, tackling, blocking, these were the things that mattered most, and he would risk insulting or even embarrassing his players to make sure that they understood these things. He did actually insult his players, by the way. You know, we often hear about Lombardi holding up the football and saying, this is a football, but we don't often hear about the response, the attitude of his, of his players to that little announcement. You know, one guy in particular, a particularly sarcastic guy, said in the middle of this, this is the football speech, hey coach, can you slow down please? You're going a little quickly for me. Even Lombardi said that he laughed at that after the fact. Vince Lombardi was a legendary coach, the best of the best, because he focused on the fundamentals. He went back to the basics. This is the second week of a 12-part series called... I am a disciple, the walk of a Christ follower. We're studying the New Testament epistle or letter that goes by the name 1 John. Now you can start making your way in your New Testament, the end of your New Testament to 1 John, and to the outline provided for you in the weekly welcome. Now I encourage you to take notes, because taking notes helps you to engage. Taking notes allows you the opportunity to write something down that strikes you. And especially I'd encourage you to take notes when we do a series like this because we're marching through a book of the Bible. And so you could compile a whole bunch of notes over the course of these 12 weeks that you could refer back to whenever you come back to this section of Scripture. But that's not even all. The last reason that I would encourage you to take notes is because... There will be a test. Actually, there will be three tests. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Pastor Jim summarized one of the ways that John, the author of this letter, seeks to help us to evaluate our walk as disciples, as Christ followers. 
he told us that there are three tests in 1 John. There's a theological test that has to do with what we believe about Jesus. There's a moral test that has to do with matters of obedience. And there is a social test that has to do with how we treat one another. You know, for John, who is a stark, call-it-what-it-is kind of guy, the importance of these tests isn't shown in the normal grading system of A, B, or C. Instead, this is a pass-fail sort of exam. You know, by the time that you get to the end of this letter, you should know whether you're in God's family or not. And these tests are designed to make that plain. But you can rest assured, because today we don't actually get to the tests Yet. So no pop quiz for today. We'll be getting to the test in subsequent weeks. Instead, John, being a good and gracious teacher in our passage for today, spends some time helping us to prepare for these tests. And he does so by taking us, note the Lombardi-like sermon title, back to the basics. Now my guess is, the minute that you saw the sermon title, or you hear me reference it as back to the basics, there are some of us here who would get a little bit insulted by regularly being told that we need to go back to the basics. Some of us would want to respond like that player on Lombardi's team, hey, can you slow it down? You know, really? Do we, re- do we really need to go back to the foundations again? Can't we go on to some of this deeper Christian stuff? You know, what I find funny about that response is that most of the time when people say, can we go to the deeper Christian stuff, they actually mean let's walk through a book of the Bible, the very thing that we're doing in this series. And so if you're insulted at all by being told that we need to go back to the basics, then you need to realize that this is John's strategy in this book as a whole and in this passage in particular. He goes back to the basics, the fundamentals To help all of us prepare for these big exams. To get honest as readers about whether or not we're really walking with Jesus at all. So we're following John's lead and we're going back to the basics in 1 John 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And to organize this section, I've broken it down into three questions that we can help us evaluate our walk. Three questions to help us evaluate our walk. So follow along as I read these verses for us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 2-2. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Three questions. Question number one, what is your attitude toward God's character? What's your attitude toward God's character? 
Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar who teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Now, I'm guessing that you don't pay a lot of attention to New Testament scholars. You're not following them with great interest, but it is possible that you've heard his name. And that's because Bart Ehrman has a very interesting story to tell, and he has done so in several New York Times best-selling publications. He recounts the story of coming to Christianity, his conversion to Christianity as a teenager, and then his subsequent interest in his faith, and especially in the scriptures. Now, he went on to, to get biblical studies training at several conservative evangelical institutions, and then finally to get a PhD in New Testament from Princeton. He's a smart cookie. Now, somewhere along the way, he lost the fired-up faith of his earlier years. Now, if you know anything about his books, you might be tempted to think that Bart Ehrman lost his faith because of his view of the Bible. In specific, as a New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman argues that there are lots of errors in the Bible and that the manuscript evidence that we have can't be trusted. These are his alleged claims. Now, as Ehrman has thought all of this through, he's put this in these popular-level books for all of us to digest. Since most of his books are about this, you would be probably right in thinking that this is the reason why he lost his faith. But you'd also be wrong. Bart Ehrman didn't lose his faith because of his study of the Bible. Bart Ehrman lost his faith because of his view of God. In a less well-known book called God's Problem, Ehrman corrects the common misinterpretation of his loss of faith. He clearly says in that book that he doesn't believe in God anymore because God's got a problem. And that's the problem of evil. As he looks around our world and sees the horrendous suffering, and he looks in his own life and sees his own suffering, he has come to the conclusion that God can't possibly be good in the face of all of that evil. And so as a result, Ehrman has opted to be an agnostic who wants to believe. Now, Ehrman's story puts into bold relief a statement that you've heard me make a dozen times. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you, and it has implications for absolutely everything in our lives. So what's your attitude toward God? What's your attitude toward his character? Again, it's a basic, but it's a penetrating question. And it's the question that verse 5 of chapter 1 forces us to ask. Look at this verse again. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, the, the more time that I spent reading and rereading this passage for today, the more and more surprised I was by John's starting point. You know, I kept asking myself, why does John start by making this simple statement about God? Well, it's pretty simple. If we don't understand about whom we're talking, then we don't know what we're talking about. This could be made really, really clear really quickly by reminding you of the comedy sketch by Abbott and Costello. Do you remember the who's on first comedy sketch? This is totally ridiculous. I'm laughing, but I'm also extremely frustrated because I just want to jump in and I want to introduce some definitions and start pointing at some of these guys and say, this is who he's actually talking about. If we don't know whom we're talking about, then we don't know what we're talking about. So it's as if John is saying in this case, hey, hey, let's go back to the basics. 
before we really even get going into this letter, in fact, before I get one line out of my introduction, I'm declaring to you the non-negotiable message that Jesus passed on to me. His authoritative message about God is... God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And so John is saying if we're clear about this basic point, then we know about whom we're talking, and so we can have a fruitful conversation. John doesn't introduce any wiggle room. The authorized definition of God that we find here is his message to declare. It's the truth about God. Now, the upshot or the implication of this is somewhat disturbing. We don't get to make God in our own image. Instead, we have to receive God's authoritative message about himself. You know, what's your attitude toward that truth? You think back to a moment ago to Ehrman's problem, which he says is God's problem. And I recognize full well that these issues are very complex. But isn't John's starting point, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, a better starting point than Ehrman's view of his own experiences or the experiences of other people? You know, what God says explicitly about himself is in his word is to be trusted more than my experiences. If I flip that around, then all that I'm left with is a God that I like, but that's it. Now, I'm guessing that most of us here would agree with this in principle, and we might even agree to the specific point as it's applied to Ehrman's situation. But the story might change when we start to think about our own lives and our own subtle crafting of a God who signs off on our every behavior. We start to think about the kinds of things that all of us are facing in life when it comes to certain kinds of issue like, issues like business integrity or marriage, or sex, or living with a boyfriend or girlfriend, or money issues, or submission to authority, or relational conflict, or in a whole host of other kinds of issues, we have a tendency to redefine God, who he is, what he thinks about these things, what he says about these things explicitly. Sometimes we even act like we don't know him at all. We function differently than what we believe. And in the process, we do ourselves a favor by letting ourselves off the hook, but in the end, we're only left with ourselves. But John hits the reset button, so to speak, by taking us back to this basic truth about God. He takes us back to the fundamental fact that God gets to define God. And I love the specific definition that he gives here of who God is. He says that no darkness resides in God because God is light. Now we have to ask ourselves, what on earth does John mean by this statement? And what does this qualification in him, there is no darkness at all, what does this qualification clarify for us? Here's the question. Does John mean, think about this, does John mean that God is light in the same way that the sun, moon, stars And lights in this room could be said to be light. Here's a a bit more uncomfortable question. Does John mean that those lights, the ones that I just mentioned, are God because God is light? Well, We'd probably quickly answer no to that, and rightly so, because God isn't every light and isn't in every light. But then what about that first question? 
I'll phrase it again. Does John mean that God is light in the same way that the sun, moon, and stars and lights in this room could be said to be light? Well, the answer is yes, kind of. You see, the biblical authors weren't interested in making statements about the material stuff of God, and that's good because God isn't material. When they talk about God, they're interested in his actions, not his essence. What he does, not what he is. So when we say the sun, the moon, the stars, and the lights in this room are lights, it's not because they are materially light. They clearly aren't. For instance, the moon is a rock that reflects light, and light bulbs have filaments with electric current running through them that light them up. In a similar way, although a much more significant way, God is light in that he shines, he illumines, he reveals. You know, the qualifying phrase, in him there is no darkness at all, further defines that God is light by drawing our attention to the purity of his lighting activity. The traditional attribute of God that we're talking about here is God's holiness, All over the scripture, God's holiness is represented by bright light that illumines and shines and reveals and exposes and purges. Now, I don't blame you at all right now for asking, what on earth does any of this have to do with everything? And John would say, everything. To anticipate where he's going in the verses that follow this, he's saying that the holy and pure God, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. He's saying that he is shining, exposing, revealing the fact that we're not like him. He's holy, but we're not. Instead, we're sinful. There is darkness in us. This is one of the key places where we want to redefine God like we just talked about a few minutes ago. We want a God that doesn't care a whole lot about sin. A God who will allow us to indulge it and then wink at it and then let us off the hook. But God is light. Or as we sometimes sing, holy, holy, holy. Holy, though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There's none beside thee. Perfect in power, in love, and purity. You know, catching a glimpse of God's magnificent holiness, God is light, allows me to see sin for what it really is. In fact, I can push this a bit further. Seeing that God is really light changes my attitude toward God's character because then I'm going to want his holiness, his light to expose me and to expose my sin. What's your attitude toward God's character, specifically here, his holiness? Is it to try to hide from God's light? Because clearly you can see that's, that's not a possibility. There's no hiding from God's holiness. Instead, we should say with the psalmist, search me, God, and know my heart. Turn your light on me. You know, we we need to ask God to shine his light in our lives to expose our sin so that we can deal with it honestly. You know, we will always, we will always have a small view of sin if we have a small view of God. 
But if we see God's holiness for what it is, that we're going to take our sin as seriously as he does. What's your attitude toward God's character? That's question number one. Question number two. What's your attitude toward sin's deception? In early 2013, an article appeared in Christianity Today that was all about sin. And the author of this article launched off by retelling a somewhat well-known story of the great thinker and writer G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was reading his newspaper one day and he came across a message from the editors. These guys were trying to get some journalistic participation going on with their readers and so they posed a question wanting readers to write in a response to the question. The question was, what's wrong with the world? And so the author of the article says that Chesterton skipped over all of the expected answers. He said nothing about corrupt politicians or ancient rivalries between warring nations or the greed of the rich and the covetousness of the poor. He left aside street crime and unjust laws and inadequate education. Environmental degradation and population growth overwhelming the earth's carrying capacity were not on his radar. Neither were the structural evils that burgeoned as wickedness became ingrained in society and its institutions in ever more complex ways. So, what did Chesterton say was wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world, Chesterton? This great thinker took pen in hand and he wrote the following few words to the editors. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's an incredible recognition, simple and profound. It's one that John wants us to understand at the core as we move along through this passage. Now, I want to summarize for us what John is saying in the next six verses, 1-6 through 2-1, and then I'm going to explore some of the details to help you see how John makes his point throughout. So here's the summary. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. What we think about sin will have a direct connection to the way that we deal with it in our lives. Say it one more time, more slowly. What we think about sin will have a direct connection to the way that we deal with sin in our lives. Now, how does John make this point? I I want you to listen as I read these six verses for us and see if you can observe the way that John structures this thing to draw this point home. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, then we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, did you observe, either because you saw it in the text or because you could tell the way that I emphasize things, how John makes connections between all of these statements? 
Did you notice or did you feel the way that John proceeds from one thought to the next? Well, what we have in these verses is a series of statements called conditional sentences or if-then statements. A conditional if-then sentence means that each part will only happen if the condition is met. So the if-then structure forms the summary statement that I just offered to us a moment ago. Let me rephrase it, rephrase it using John's if-then structure. He says, if we think about sin rightly, then we'll deal with sin rightly in our lives. Now John actually develops several different contrasts throughout these verses. And within each of these contrasts, he has multiple conditional statements. And so as you're reading this along, it's a little bit difficult, a little hairy to sort of which ones go with which ones after I've actually even isolated them correctly. So to help us, here's a diagram that puts these contrasts into their parts. Now I want to draw your attention first to the left side of the diagram. This side is concerned to show inappropriate ways to think about sin. There are, according to John, three different claims we could make. Well, we could deny that sin breaks fellowship. That is, God doesn't think it's a very, a very big deal. Or we could deny that sin makes us guilty. Or we could deny that sin is our specific, our personal problem. Now, those three claims lead directly to three results. John says, if you say these kinds of things, then you're lying. You're deceived, and you're making God a liar. So in short, on this side of the diagram, we're saying sin doesn't affect me, and God is saying that's simply not true. You're not being honest about sin or about its consequences. Now, if you move over to the right side of the diagram, well, we see that this side is concerned with an appropriate response to sin. Again, there are three activities in relation to sin. Here, we can walk in God's light, that is, allow his holiness to expose us. We can confess our sins. And thirdly, we can appeal to Jesus, the advocate. Similarly to the other section, these three things produce three results. John says we'll have fellowship with believers, and we'll receive forgiveness and cleansing, we'll gain the benefits of the advocacy of Jesus on our behalf. So in this case, on the right side of the diagram, we're saying sin does affect me, and as a result, I want to agree with God. I want to deal with it rightly, and I want to walk with him. Does this all make sense? That you can see how all of these little bits and pieces fit together into the summary that I mentioned earlier. John wants us to recognize that what we think about sin has a direct connection to how we deal with sin in our lives. If we recognize the deception of sin, then we'll deal with it appropriately. And the practice that John gives us for undermining sin's deception is found in verse 9. The second set of contrasts, the right side of the diagram. John encourages us to get honest through confession as the means to undermine sin's deception. Take a look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The practice of confession 
is a matter of honestly facing sin head on daily so that you could receive cleansing from God and as a result walk in the light. Now I'm guessing that many of us practice confession on a regular basis in some way, but to help others of us be able to do that, I want to share a couple of ideas for you. And you'll often hear us say, when we talk about these kinds of things, that you can take or leave these specific suggestions, but you can't take or leave John's talking of the confession of sin as the way to unearth sin's deception. He says this is how this works. We need to confess our sin. We must do that, but you don't have to do it this way. Okay, so I have heard someone say that we should keep short accounts with sin, which means that we need to deal with it quickly and specifically and comprehensively. Quickly. You know, I, would, I would suggest that you don't allow a 24-hour period, a day to go by, before you've dealt with sin before God. I normally am doing this in a personal quiet time in the morning, but this could just as easily be done at any given point in the day. The point is to deal with sin quickly so that it doesn't take root in our lives. Second, specifically, it's very easy when you're praying, you've probably had this experience, just to say, God, I've sinned, please forgive me. But it's a very different experience when I say, God, I sinned by making that conversation all about me. Or, God, I sinned by neglecting that opportunity to serve my spouse. Or, God, I sinned when I exploded in anger. Or, I sinned by exaggerating to make myself look good. Or, I sinned by lusting after that person. Or, I sinned by deceiving my friend. Or, I sinned by disobeying and authority, or I sinned by gossiping about so-and-so. The more specific we get in our confession, the less deceptive sin gets. So we want to be specific. Third, comprehensively. In this category, we're not... We're not just going to do a simple confession. We're actually propelled past a simple confession to deal with the fallout. We go back to the people that we've actually offended, sinned against, or neglected, and we confess that sin to them as well. In this case, we want to put sin to death. We don't want to just simply scratch the surface. Now, according to 1 John 1.9, this practice of confession that's specific and quick and comprehensive results in something incredible. It results in... Forgiveness and cleansing from God. Forgiveness and cleansing from God. I have a confession to make. Over time, for whatever reason, partly because of over-familiarity, I started to treat this whole confession thing as very mechanical rather than relational. Now, I could just very quickly identify sin and confess sin and take for granted the reception of forgiveness. God does that. That's what he does. So I can confess it, and he will forgive me. But something particular jumped me out back into the gratitude zone, recognizing the weight of this, this thing that God gives me, forgiveness and cleansing. I was hearing somebody teach through the Old Testament book of Numbers, probably a surprise to most of us, and as this person was walking through the book of Numbers, he kept pointing out this specific phrase that said, and his sin will be forgiven. In fact, he expanded it to include Leviticus as well. If you read through the books of Leviticus and Numbers, you cannot miss the overwhelming number of times that it says, and his sin will be forgiven. Forgiven, 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 forgiven. And somewhere in there, the gift and the grace of this struck me as if for the first time all over again. Think about this. God is light. 
in him there is no darkness at all. People are sinful. In them there is darkness a lot. But God forgives and cleanses dark, sinful people so that they can walk in the light as he is in the light. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. That's amazing. God is so gracious. You know that you have a right attitude towards sin's deception if you can call it what it is, name it, sin, and get specific about it, and confess it, and then receive forgiveness. Those are all indications that you're walking in God's light. Three questions. What's your attitude toward God's character? What's your attitude toward sin's deception? Finally, question number three, what's your attitude toward Jesus' cross? Take a look at the last verse of this passage. John says, referring to Jesus, this advocate and righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The significance of these words can't be overstated, but before we delve into them, I want to set a backdrop for us. I want to read you a prayer that I'm guessing is going to strike you as a little bit odd. Now, this prayer is composed by an ancient person. It's a very, very old prayer, 2nd millennium B.C. This thing is really back there. And as this person is praying, you're going to note, this is a person who has a very, very heavy conscience and can find no relief. The prayer is titled, A Prayer to Every God. Now, here, here's what he says. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. An offense against my God, I have unwittingly committed. O oh Lord, my sins are many. Great are my iniquities. My God, my sins are many. Great are my iniquities. I sought for help, but no one took my hand. I wept, but no one came to my side. I am afflicted. I am overcome. I cannot look up. How long until the anger of thy heart be pacified? Of all men who are alive, who knows anything? Unknown God, my sins are seven times seven. Forgive my sin. Now, After I got done reading that, I thought to myself, i got to give this guy some credit. Now, this is a person who clearly takes his sin seriously and recognizes the need to confess it. And in that sense, he's a whole lot better off than the vast majority of people living in our so-called enlightened world. But he's also got some serious problems. You know, he doesn't know to whom he's praying, which means he doesn't know whom he's offended. He doesn't know quite what the offense is, even though he's willing to call it sin and iniquity. And he also doesn't know what it will take to satisfy the offended party. So with intense emotion and a heavy conscience, he's crying out for help and forgiveness but he doesn't know if anything can actually change. How is this different from what we find in 1 John chapter 1? As we've seen, two of the same elements are in both of these prayers. Two of the same elements in this prayer and in this text. Confession to God and taking sin seriously. So what's different? Well, the three problems for this ancient 
praying man are all addressed in our passage in 1 John. John knows the offended party. John knows what the offense is, and he knows the way to address the offense. You know, in verse 5, we've already learned that it is God who is light. That is holiness who is offended. In our if-then diagram, we learned that it is sin which has disastrous and deceitful effects. That's the offense. And here, in 2-2, we learn that it is Jesus who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the one to address the offense before God. We could be tempted to think that our act of confession, the practice itself, the stuff that I just described, is the thing that causes God to forgive us. But that would be to miss where this entire discussion is going in John's train of thought. John, having referred to Jesus' blood already in this passage, makes it clear that our assurance of forgiveness is the result not of our confessing of sin, but the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection provide the way, the only way to deal with this sin, this offense before God. Now, I threw in the phrase, the only way, to paraphrase John's words at the last bit of this line, because he says at the end of verse 2 that Jesus' sacrifice is also for the sins of the whole world. Now, he doesn't mean that Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, is automatically applied to everybody who lives on the planet. Instead, he means that Jesus' blood, Jesus' death, Jesus' cross is the only way to address the offense of our sin before God for all people everywhere at all times. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that will work to solve our sin problem. Both when we come to God for the first time seeking forgiveness, which I would encourage anybody to do today, and when we come to God over and over again to confess our sins every time after that. It's always and only on the basis of Jesus' cross. So what's your attitude toward Jesus' cross? Are you appalled by its exclusivity? Are you offended by the fact that Jesus' cross accuses you personally of sin? Has Jesus' cross lost its wonder for you? You've become overly familiar, like I have at points, with forgiveness? Is, is Jesus' cross something that produces humility in you as you consider God's grace on that cross? What's your attitude toward Jesus' cross? It's an appropriate question to ask, especially as we approach our time of communion, a time focused on Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. It's John's purpose to take us back to the basics in, in this passage he takes us back to basic things, God and sin and Jesus. You're, you're walking in the light. You're a disciple if you're saying, expose me in the light of God's holiness. And you're saying, forgive me in the overwhelming gravity of my sin. And thank you as a remembrance, a response to Jesus' cross. 